The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Take your Bibles and open in them to Matthew chapter 7. As we're nearing the end of our study in the Sermon on the Mount, we come to a section of Scripture, verses 15 through 23, which gives some of Jesus' strongest warnings yet. And it's a warning, as I mentioned earlier, against religious forgeries. Now, I'm a church historian, and I find interesting the study of how God has worked throughout the last 2,000 years of church history. And I followed this theme, the theme of religious forgeries through and found some interesting stories. Throughout the history of the church, forgeries have played a significant role. There have been, for example, forged documents which were held to be genuine and which affected greatly the life of the church. One king, get this one, I love this story, in the ancient Near East claimed to have had a letter written by Jesus Christ himself. Apparently, the king, who was alive during Jesus' time, uh, was sick and heard of Jesus' miraculous uh, healing powers and sent a messenger asking that, the king, uh, that Jesus would come personally and heal him. Well, Jesus sat down and wrote him a letter, so to speak, and uh, in the letter he said he's, he's sorry he couldn't get away at the present time, but he was going to send one of his disciples. And so the disciple carried the letter up to the king, and uh, uh, the king received the letter, and then the disciple healed the king. And the letter was held in that kingdom for many years and shown as a display of God's great uh, mercy in giving the only letter that Jesus ever wrote, ever, uh, to this obscure king in an ancient Near Eastern kingdom. Obviously a forgery. Another forgery is a donation of Constantine. Constantine, the first uh, Christian emperor, the Roman emperor, uh, supposedly wrote a letter to the bishop of Rome basically giving him the right to rule over all of Christendom in the West. And this uh, very, it was a very important document called the Donation of Constantine, and it affected church history for, thousands, for hundreds of years until the 16th century, when a scholar showed that there was no way it could have been written by Constantine. The vocabulary and the writing style came hundreds of years after Constantine. It was a forgery. Some, for me, the most interesting, perhaps spectacular forgeries center around relics. Have you ever heard of relics? They're little physical artifacts which were supposed to have some kind of spiritual power. Oh, it, could be, it could be anything, some object, maybe a, a bit of bone from a martyr, maybe a piece of his finger or something, maybe something he wore, an article of clothing. Uh, it could be a, a cup, a drinking cup used by one of the apostles. Uh, if you had one of these in your church, you could be guaranteed of having good attendance on a Sunday because people would come from miles around just to see it and touch it. And relics were very important and very popular throughout the Middle Ages. Some of these items were so valuable that they were sold for a king's ransom. And because of the monetary value of these relics, you could imagine that there were many forgeries as well. Also, because some of these relics were supposed to have miraculous powers. Like if you could touch this or just get near that, you would be healed of your illnesses. And so people would go on pilgrimages to certain places where these relics were, so just so that they could receive the benefit of the healing power. But of all these stories, the, ones I found, the one that I found was most interesting was the story of the true cross of Jesus Christ. Do you ever wonder what happened to the physical cross that Jesus died on? Actually, I never did until I read this story, but I guess some people wondered and they wanted to know what happened to the cross. Apparently, it was found by Helena, who was the mother of Constantine. She went on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem around the year 320, 326 AD. She was guided to the spot 
of the crucifixion by an aged Jewish woman who, who received as an inheritance this information about where Jesus had died three centuries before. And so she brought Helena, the mother of Constantine, to this place, and they started to dig. And they dug for a while, and lo and behold, they found three crosses. Can you believe it? And they brought them out, and there was not only the crosses, but the nails that they had used for the crucifixion, and even the superscription, which was written over Jesus' head. Well, then you may ask, well, what did she do with the cross? She divided it up into portions. Portion of the cross stayed right there where they had a church. And so that was the Church of the True Cross, and they set up a feast day once a year uh, celebrating Helena's discovery of the True Cross. A portion of the wood was sent to Byzantine, to the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire, to her son Constantine, and a portion of it was sent to Rome. Um, Eventually what happened with this wood is it started getting divided into smaller and smaller fragments and sent to churches all over Europe. Uh, And I don't know if they miraculously started to multiply like the bread and fish, But uh, by the time of the Reformation, uh, John Calvin said there was enough wood from the true cross of Christ to form a fleet of ships. Uh, So most of those, obviously, forgeries. What absolutely happened to the the wood itself, who knows? I actually think it probably just disappeared and rotted because God knows just how idolatrous we are and how much we go in for this kind of thing. You may wonder what happened to the nails. Well, there was a debate in the Middle Ages as to whether there were three nails or four nails. But one way or the other, the story goes that Helena had one of the nails and she was walking beside the sea and there was a storm. And she took the nail and threw it into the storm and the storm was quieted just like that. Isn't that amazing? So one nail was gone, but a great miracle was accomplished with the result of the one nail. The other nails apparently were hammered into a a crown which which was used by the kings of the Lombards, the French kings, and apparently continued for many years. These were the, the these are the, uh, the this crown came from the thorn, the um, uh, nails which Jesus uh, which were used for crucifying Jesus. Now, in terms of the superscription, the superscription eventually went to Rome and it was it disappeared for hundreds of years and eventually was found in 1492. So the same time that Columbus was sailing across, they discovered discovered the superscription. People, of course, were skeptical, so the Pope issued a bull saying this was the genuine superscription, uh, which went over the head of Jesus Christ. Now, what do you think about all these things? First of all, we're Protestants, so we don't tend to go in for that kind of thing. But the point is that they are religious forgeries, every single one of them. And there is no spiritual value attached to them at all. And they have done great damage to the faith of many. But of all these religious forgeries, there's none that does greater damage than the forgeries which Jesus deals with here in the Sermon on the Mount, namely false prophets and false professions. And these are the two that Jesus deals with here in the verses that we're going to look at right now. Read along with me in Matthew 7, verse 15 and following. Jesus says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree cannot bear bad fruit. A good tree... A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So there's two sections in this little 
uh, portion of the Sermon on the Mount. One of them deals with false prophets and the other deals with false professions. And both of them are Jesus' way of getting his people ready for Judgment Day because that is the section of Scripture that we're in now. In Matthew 7, Jesus is getting people ready for Judgment Day and he will culminate in the section we will study next week on the two houses. But here he's getting us ready by preparing us and guarding us against religious forgeries. Now, the first danger he warns us against is that of false prophets. False prophets. Now, what is the definition of a false prophet? Well, first, in order to understand what a false prophet is, you have to understand what a true prophet is. For Satan always comes in behind the true and corrupts it and makes something false. He doesn't create anything new. He only perverts what God has set out. And it was God who set out prophets and prophecy as a form of communication with his people. The way it happened was this. At Mount Sinai, God was speaking in a powerful voice, so powerful and in such a terrifying way that the people did not want to listen anymore to the voice of God. They were so afraid. And so they asked Moses, please, you speak for, for God to us because we cannot listen to this voice. And God said, what the people have asked is good. He said, it's a good thing. They are showing proper reverence for my word, proper fear of the Lord. And so he says in Deuteronomy 18, I will raise up a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth. That's the name of a, that's what a prophet is. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I have commanded him. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded him to say or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods must be put to death. He is a false prophet. So a false prophet is somebody who presumes to say, thus says the Lord, and then goes on and says something God did not command him to say. He is a false prophet. God had a clear source of steady revelation through the prophets. The prophets would come and stand before the people and say, thus says the Lord, and an oracle would come out just the way God had told the prophet to say. But along with that, throughout Israel's history, would come others who would say, thus says the Lord, and God did not command them to say that. And that all culminated around the time of Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah was given a message from God to proclaim to Jerusalem, and it was not going to be a popular one. The message was that God had had it with his people and that they were to be evicted out of the promised land. He was going to kick them out by the Babylonians. And so Jeremiah had to go preach this unpopular message. Well, at the same time, there were false prophets there preaching just the opposite, a message of comfort, a message of encouragement at exactly the wrong time. That was the time the people should have been repenting. But instead, these false prophets came and twisted everything around. And this is what it says in Jeremiah 23:16. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord says, you will have peace. But to all who follow, and to all who follow the stubbornness of their hearts, they say, no harm will come to you. But which of them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see or hear his word? Who has listened or heard his word? That's a very important verse. There God is saying this is what a false prophet is. They are coming and comforting the people at exactly the wrong time. And none of them stood in my counsel to hear my word. They are false prophets. And so it says in Jeremiah 23:21, I did not send these prophets, yet they have run with their message. I did not speak to them, yet they have prophesied. That is a false prophet. Now, in the New Testament, there is a counterpart. We don't have false prophets. We have false teachers. And so Peter makes this distinction in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. It says, there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So in the Old Covenant, we've got the false prophets. In the New Covenant, 
we have false teachers. Now, a prophet says, thus says the Lord, and revelation just comes out. This is what God told me to say. But a teacher takes the existing revelation, the written word of God, and explains it to the people. A false prophet says, thus says the Lord, and that was not the message God said to say. He's not a messenger from God. A false teacher takes the existing revelation and twists it around from what God intended. And so is a false teacher. Now, what is the danger of false teaching? Well, first of all, the danger is clear from verse 15. Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. The word is very strong in the original. Jesus is saying you must guard against false prophets. They are a true danger. Now, I had a suspicion about something and I decided to research it. And in the 27 books of the New Testament... All but two directly speak about false prophecy, false prophets, or false teaching and warn against it. Every single one. The two that I didn't find, and although this morning I was doing a little research in First Peter, I think there may be a few verses that tend in that direction, especially in chapter 5. But in all honesty, I didn't see anything directly related to false prophecy or false teaching there. And in the little book of Philemon, every other book has some mention of false prophets or false teaching. Isn't that significant? Even 2nd and 3rd John, those little books, mention it. There is a genuine danger to false teaching. And it has plagued the church for 2,000 years. And why is it such a danger? It's because of the significant role that God has established for the role of teaching in the growth of the church. In order to understand that, you look at Ephesians 4. You don't have to turn there, but there's a section in Ephesians chapter 4 in which it says that God has given some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure, the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants blown back and forth or tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. The whole thing is about false doctrine. The wind of teaching and the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Him who is the head, that is Christ. Central role of teaching. It is teaching that completes the work of God on earth. Ephesians chapter 4, very plain on that. And so Jesus prays in John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. But along comes this false teacher and he begins to twist this word. He begins to, to turn it around, to say things that aren't contained in it or to avoid some portions of it that are a little uncomfortable. And thus the people of God do not grow to full maturity. Paul warned about this danger in almost exactly the same words that Jesus uses. In Acts 20, verse 29, he's speaking to the Ephesian elders and he says, I know that after I leave, Savage wolves will come in among you and not spare the flock. Even from, this is so devastating, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Do you think that Paul thought that this issue of false teaching was important? Three years I warned you night and day with tears? Oh, he got his people ready. He said, after I leave, there's going to be these false prophets and they'll come among you, these false teachers, from your own number, like savage wolves who will not spare the flock. So he uses the exact same kind of language. False teachers are as dangerous to the church as ravenous wolves are to the sheep. False doctrine leads to false belief. False belief leads to false practice. And the combination of false belief and false practice, if not repented from, leads to hell. And so therefore, this issue is deadly serious. And so Jesus warns us about it. And so Paul, in the strongest possible language, says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, even if we 
or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you something other than what we committed to you, let him be eternally condemned. He says it twice. So to Paul, this was a deadly serious issue. Now what of their disguise? What of their disguise? It says in verse 15, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Looks are deceiving. They look good on the outside, don't they? You're drawn in by the way that they're the outward trappings of their life. It looks good. Well, this shouldn't surprise us at all. It says in 2 Corinthians 11, such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as what? An angel of light. So he's a master of disguises. I think he rejoices in that picture of him with the horns and the tail and the pitchfork. No, it's ludicrous. It's absolutely ludicrous. That's not his disguise at all. His disguise is attractive. It's alluring, comfortable. It's much like a lot of this angel kind of religion these days. Very comfortable, leads you in. But Satan behind it, he's an angel of light and he's deceiving. He's no fool. He's been at this a long time. And so his messengers, the ones he sends out, will masquerade also as servants of righteousness. They have deceptive lives. They look good. They look moral or outwardly righteous. But inside, they are corrupt. Jesus, in speaking to the false teachers of his day, the Pharisees, in Matthew 23, 27, says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed walls which look, uh, whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to men as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So false teachers look good on the outside, but inside, the, it's a totally different situation. And this also masks their false motives. False teachers have false motives. Now, what is the motive of a true teacher of God? I'll tell you right now. It's the glory of God in the health of the church. I'll say that again. A true teacher of God's primary motive is the glory of God in the health and strength of his church. That's a, that's a true teacher's motive. Well, what is the motive then of a false teacher? Well, I just about guarantee it's earthbound. Something here on this earth. Material possessions, uh, sexual immorality power, something like that. But it's earthbound almost every time. Paul alludes to this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5. He says, you know that we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. You see, what he's saying is that most of these kind of teachers go around and they need to look good on the outside, but inside it's greed that's motivating. They're looking for money or something like that. Well, what of their doctrine? What of their doctrine? Now, this, this is really getting to the heart of the issue here. And I think with the doctrine, <clears throat> frequently, it's not so much what they say, although sometimes it's what they say, but as frequently, at least th in these days, it's what they don't say. It's what they leave out that frequently can mark them as false teachers. Now, throughout 2,000 years of church history, church history, many false teachers have gotten up and denied true doctrines. And pretty much every significant <clears throat> excuse me, doctrine of the church has been denied at some point by a false teacher whether the deity of Christ, the Trinity, the, every aspect of salvation, justification by faith, all of these things have been denied at some point by a false teacher, just an attack from Satan one after another. But these days, as I look especially at the evangelical church, I worry sometimes about false teachers in terms of what they leave out, what they don't say. What am I talking about? Well, they don't openly deny the deity of Christ <clears throat> or the substitutionary atonement. They don't openly deny the depravity and the lostness of man. They don't openly deny the reality and penalty of sin. 
the destiny and the eternity of hell for all unbelievers. They don't openly deny these things. They don't openly deny the need for repentance and obedience to God or other, how shall I call them, uncomfortable truths like the narrow gate and the narrow way we talked about last time. They don't openly deny this. They just don't talk about them. They just leave them off. They skip over those passages in the Scripture because they're uncomfortable. They keep to positive things like the love of God, the joys of heaven, the compassion of the Lord, His willingness to forgive all sin, uh, His help in everyday life. Now, all of those things I just listed are true biblical doctrines. God is loving. He does forgive all sin in Jesus' name. And He does help us in our everyday life. And there is tremendous joy in heaven. But that's not all God has said to us, is it? He said a lot of other things too. Well, these false teachers, they just tend to ignore those things. And why? Because it doesn't suit their earthbound purpose. They need to have popularity. They need to have people clamoring to be near them. And so they need to keep the message positive. And the real issue has to do with how they deal with sin. I think that's the heart of the issue. In Jeremiah 6.14, speaking of the false prophets of his day, Jeremiah 6.14, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. As though it were light, insignificant. Now, if you went to a doctor here at Duke and you had some kind of uh, serious tumor or something like that and they said, look, it's not serious, just go home. Uh, it wouldn't be long before the lawyers would be knocking on his door. It's called malpractice. Well, I think there's a lot of spiritual malpractitioners, malpract people who are saying, basically, you're, you're okay, everything's all right, just move along, try to do a little bit better. They deal with the problem of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Jeremiah 6.14. And so I think that is the consistent theme of the false prophecy ministry, namely dealing with sin in a light way, a light touch, a, a word of encouragement, just a little bit of comfort, and that's all you need. And why is it? Why do these false teachers flourish? Why are they so popular? It's simply because the people want it that way. Many of the people want it that way. And this is what it says in Jeremiah 5. A horrible and shocking thing has happened in the land. The, pe the prophets prophesy lies. The priests rule by their own authority. And my people love it that way. Oh, isn't that devastating? My people love it that way. Write this one down. Isaiah 30, verse 9 through 11. Look it up when you go home. I came across these verses a while ago and they just opened my eyes. Isaiah 30, verse 9 through 11. Now, this is what the prophet Isaiah says who met the same phenomenon. He says, these are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. They say to the seers, see no more visions. And to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Listen to this. Tell us pleasant things. Oh, my goodness. That's the 20th century church. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. Leave this way. Get off this path and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Oh, my goodness. I read that and I said, I've, I've heard it. I've seen it before. Leave this way. Get off this path and stop talking about this holy God. I don't want to hear it anymore. I want an easy gospel. I want a broad path, a wide gate. That's what I want. And so Isaiah faced the same thing. Now, what of their doctrine? The false teachers focus, I think, on material benefits here on earth. They tend to anyway. Why? Because that's what's in their own heart. They tend to focus on material prosperity and on wealth. They tend to focus on, on issues to do with pride and other things that are connected to this world age. And so it says in 2 Corinthians 2.17, unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. Isn't that powerful? We don't peddle the word. We don't go town to town looking for a profit here. That's not what we're doing. 
unlike so many. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity like men sent from God. That's the way we talk to you. We talk to you as though we have a message from God. And God has more to say than I love you. He has other things to say too. He said a lot of things in these books, in this book. And so he's communicating directly. And Paul says, I didn't hold back preaching anything that would be helpful to you. False teachers also tend to emphasize works righteousness rather than grace. They tend to focus on what you can achieve through your own work, through your own effort, like the Pharisees in Jesus' day. It may seem that they're giving you a rigorous uh, uh, regimen of spiritual discipline, but really what they're doing is pandering to your pride, saying you can work out your salvation apart from Christ, apart from grace. Ultimately, I think I've found two aspects that you never find in their teaching. Spiritual begging and the narrow gate, those two. You're not going to find spiritual begging, namely, oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You're not going to find that in their teaching, and you're not going to find that narrow gate. They emphasize human effort over God's grace. They emphasize human decision over God's initiative. They live more for this present world than they do for heaven. And they eliminate all uncomfortable doctrines so that they can be popular. That is a false teacher. Now, how do we discover them? How do we find out who they are? Their discovery. In verse 16, Jesus says, By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Answer, no. Have you ever picked a grape from a thorn bush? It can't be done unless somebody came and stuck it on one of the thorns, and then you know it's unnatural. It's not meant to be there. And so good fruit is unnatural for these people. They don't produce good fruit. Jesus wants us to know who they are, and so he gives us the fruit test. We are to be fruit inspectors. So you're supposed to come along and inspect the fruit. And in three areas, I think, look at the character, and look at their creed, and look at their converts, those three. In terms of character, you're not going to find, for example, any of the Beatitudes in a false teacher. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. And I mean mourn over sin. Right? You're not going to find that. Blessed are the meek. Have you ever seen a false teacher who's meek? They're always boastful, pompous, and arrogant. They're always full of themselves. You're not going to see hungering and thirsting after righteousness or a challenge for the people to do the same. And you're not going to find mercy among them. Look at the Beatitudes if you want to know what kind of character you should see in a true teacher of God. John Calvin, the great uh, Swiss reformer, said there is nothing more difficult to counterfeit than virtue. It's very difficult to, to counterfeit true Christian character. How about their creed? Now, we've already talked about it. It's a message of gaps. It's a message of what's left out. But also, they, ha they, ha they do not emphasize the deity and the sovereignty and the power of God and, and His incarnation on earth. They deny that. Maybe not actively, but they deny it ultimately. Their creed. And so the Apostle Paul says in Acts 20, verse 27, I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God's will. I didn't hold out those uncomfortable verses that no one likes to preach. By the way, that's why I preach the way I do. I have to tell you that just methodologically. I just go at the beginning and just move through. Why? Because I'm such a sinner. I like to preach easy, comfortable messages too. And if I preach topically, before you know it, I'd start gravitating to those things that are a little bit easier to preach. It's better for me to just move through and just say what's here. And when I get done when, with verses 15 through 23, I just want to know, is that what was there? That's all. But it's so easy to leave out those uncomfortable truths. So look at their creed. And finally, look at their converts. The converts tend to be like them. There's a, there's a great story. Um, uh, I think it's a story of Spurgeon in which somebody came up to Spurgeon uh, or Spurgeon saw somebody and he was drunk on the street and he came up to him and he said, uh, Mr. Spurgeon, I'm one of your converts. And he said, well, you must be one of mine because you're certainly not one of the Lord's. A very convicting story. 
But what he's saying is, he's saying there could be a difference between those that are converted in a ministry and those who are truly converted of Jesus Christ. And so what ends up happening is the false teachers tend to have a bunch of followers very much like them, after them. And again, with them, you're not going to see any of that beatitude Christianity. The next point Jesus brings up is their damnation. Their damnation. Verse, verse 19, he alludes to it. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Now, what do you think Jesus is talking about there? Well, he already told us in chapter 5 what this fire is. It's the fire of hell. Now, although Jesus doesn't openly speak of it here, turn over, if you would, in your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2 is an entire chapter dedicated to this one theme, this one point, namely the eternal damnation of false teachers. 2 Peter chapter 2. And there Peter writes, there are also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. There it is, swift destruction on themselves. Verse 2, many will follow their shameful ways and bring the way of truth into disrepute. Verse 3, in their greed, there's the motive, in their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. And then from verse 4 on the whole middle paragraph, there is a long sentence. It says basically this, If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. Then if you skip down all the other examples, it says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. Verse 13, it says that these false teachers will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. And then look at verse 17. These men are springs without water. You know what that is? It's the living water. When you come to a true teacher of God, you get living water, Jesus Christ. But when you come to a false teacher, you get springs without water. There's nothing there. These men are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. Very clear is Peter in 2 Peter 2. Going back to the Sermon on the Mount now in chapter 7. Throughout the Scripture, Peter... Paul, Jesus are clear that unrepentant false teachers are condemned to an eternity in hell. And so that is their punishment. That is how serious God takes this whole issue of false teaching. Well, what is our duty? In reference to false teaching, what is our duty? It is simple. In verse 20, it says, Thus by their fruit you will recognize them. He said it twice. We're supposed to recognize them. We're supposed to uncover them. We're supposed to be protected against them. You're supposed to be mature in your faith enough, you're supposed to know the Bible enough to say that's false teaching. What you're teaching is false. It's not true. You have to be able to cite chapter and verse. In Acts 17, 11, it says, The Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Now, how do you think Paul felt about that? Well, how dare you check up on me like that? Do you think Paul said that? Don't you know who I am? I am the Apostle Paul. I don't teach false teaching. No, it says they're more noble character. That's noble. Take it home. Study it. If you don't believe what I just said about 2 Peter 2, go read 2 Peter 2 for yourself. And you see what it's saying. Compare what I say to the Scriptures. Do it. And thereby you'll grow. But that's our duty. We're supposed to uncover false teachers and recognize them and reject them. Also, get close to Jesus Christ. Walk with him faithfully. In John 10, 5, it says, My sheep will never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run away from the stranger because they don't recognize the stranger's voice. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you can recognize false teaching in a heartbeat. 
Now, up to this point, we've been t talking about false teachers and false teaching. I really believe that most of you are not in danger of becoming false teachers, per se. I have a greater danger of that than you do because of my position. But what Jesus says next in the next few verses, you should take with the greatest soberness and seriousness. For I don't think that Jesus spoke more serious words to us in any of the scriptures than in the verses I'm about to read. There Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I hope not, but there may be some people listening to me today who are self-deceived, who believe that they are Christians and they are not. And these words are for you. Don't be shocked on Judgment Day. Be shocked today. Be shocked now if you don't really know Jesus. Because many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, I never knew you. Be shocked now. And what day is he referring to? Many will say to me on that day, well, it's Judgment Day. Judgment Day, when those facades are stripped away. Judgment Day, when spiritual beggars who have hungered and thirsted after righteousness will be invited into the kingdom of heaven. Judgment Day, when the true thoughts of the heart are revealed for all to see. Judgment Day, a day of horrifying shock for people. Because on that day, the Lord Jesus will come in His glory and He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. And He will gather all the nations before Him. And he will separate the nations one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And if you don't think that it's not a day of horrifying shock, then read Matthew 25. Because the ones who are the goats, many of them didn't think they were goats. They were shocked. They were surprised. Today is the day to be shocked and surprised. When you can still do something about it. Self-deceit is the most dangerous sin there is. And what does it say here? It says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. You know what that is? That's orthodox doctrine. It's right belief. Is Jesus Lord? Actually, you have to say, you must say Jesus is Lord in order to be saved. It says in Romans 10:9, it says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, what's the problem here? Here are these people saying Jesus is Lord with their mouth. But it's just with their mouth. Their hearts are far from God. Not everyone who says but those who do. You can really just pull those words out. Not those who say, but those who do. Many will say, Lord, Lord, but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. And so it's orthodox doctrine. You must say Jesus is Lord in order to be saved. For Jesus is Lord. In Philippians 2, verse 10 and 11, it says, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is Lord. And you must say so in order to be saved. But it's not enough. Even the demons believe that Jesus is Lord and they shudder. It's not enough. Well, even worse, they don't just say Lord. What do they say? Lord, Lord. There's some passion there, isn't there? There's some passion. Lord, Lord, they say. There's, there's not just orthodoxy, but there's seemingly outward passion. Oh, what a man of God. What passion he has for the Lord. What a show, what a sham. Orthodoxy and outward zeal and passion is not enough. 
Not only that, they have a resume, don't they? Amazing good works. Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name? Didn't we perform miracles in your name? Over and over they say, this is their resume. Now, I don't know if they actually did these things, but even if they did, it wouldn't prove anything. Don't you remember around the time of Moses when the, when the magicians of Pharaoh could duplicate miracles? Just because you can do miracles doesn't mean a thing. It says at the time of the coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2.9, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit signs and wonders. Counterfeit signs and wonders. That's what these are if they ever happened at all. So it's quite a resume. I'm not sure most of us could compete with that resume. And the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. So you can have all this power and whatever, but if you don't have love, according to 1 Corinthians 13, you're nothing. And so it's possible to have an incredible resume and still you're far from God. And what is the reality? Well, it's that they're far from God. They were never born again. There was never any hungering and thirsting after righteousness. They never entered the narrow gate. They stood on the outside. They kept saying, Lord, Lord, but they never believed in Him. They never called on Him as their Savior and Lord. And the real issue comes down to one of obedience to God, doesn't it? Verse 21, everyone who, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. First John chapter 2, verse 3, it says, We know that we have come to know Him if we what? Obey His commandments. If we obey His commandments. The man who says, I know Him, but does not do what He commands is what? A liar. That's what John says, 1 John 2, verse 3 through 6. He's a liar and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. There is conformity to the character of Christ. There's obedience to his commands. Is there perfect obedience here in this world? No. For in that very same book, 1 John 1, there's provision for confession of sin. And actually, if you deny that you have sin, you're a liar too. So it's not talking about perfection in this world, but there's a hungering. There's a thirsting after righteousness. But these people here in my text in verse 23 are called evildoers. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. There's disobedience in their life. And ultimately, the central issue here is not so much, did I know Jesus, but did he know me? What did he say? I never knew you. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I didn't know you. John 10, 14, it says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. And my sheep know me. And so here's the divine order for salvation. I know you, says God. I know you. Number two, I change you. Number three, you know me. Number four, you obey me. That's how it goes. God starts by knowing us. Then he transforms us by his spirit so that we're regenerate. We're born again through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. And then we, we begin to call out on Him and then we begin to obey Him. We walk in obedience to His commands. Well, these who did not do that, they are rejected. And if Jesus doesn't know you on Judgment Day, you are eternally condemned, just like the false teachers. And everything you can read about Second Peter 2, you could say, would be true of anyone that Jesus said, I never knew you on Judgment Day. Don't let that be said about you. We are in, in the Sermon on the Mount, the portion of the sermon called Application. And Jesus is appealing to you to be saved. He's appealing to you to enter the narrow gate. He's appealing to you to make sure that you are in the kingdom of heaven. Now you say, well, what about once saved, always saved? Well, that's true if you're truly saved. You can't lose a genuine salvation. The question is, do you have a genuine salvation? And so Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, 
Look that one up too. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. What I'm urging you to do here is biblical. 2 Corinthians 13 says, Test yourself, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Do you not know that Christ Jesus is inside you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. 2 Corinthians 13.5 2 Peter 1.10 says, Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager, be zealous to make your calling and your election sure. Be sure you're a Christian. Be sure you've given your faith, your heart to Jesus Christ. And then you could say, well, what are the marks of true saving faith? Look at the Beatitudes. Go back to there. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It all starts with being a spiritual beggar, knowing that you need a Savior, mourning over sin. And then it just unfolds from there. Look at the Beatitudes. Have a, do you have a deep knowledge of personal sinfulness? Do you believe that if Jesus hadn't come, you'd go to hell? Do you really believe that? I do. As a matter of fact, I think it's in 1 Timothy 1.15. This is the verse that has given me comfort this week as I also have wrestled with the same issue. And it's this. It says, Here is a trustworthy saying worthy of full assurance or full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. That's what the Apostle Paul said. Now let me tell you something. If you can hold on to every aspect of that Verse, I have good confidence that you're a Christian. Do you genuinely believe that Jesus came into the world to save sinners? And do you genuinely believe that you're the worst and that you needed a Savior? Or do you think you're basically a pretty good guy? I'm basically a good person. Banish that phrase. I don't ever want to hear it again. We are sinners saved by grace. And the grace is available through Jesus Christ for all who will call on His name. For anyone who will call on the name of Jesus, salvation is available. And then... For anyone who is truly saved, then you will grow in grace in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Then will, there will be a flow of good works. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Well, do the fruit test on yourself. What's the fruit of my life? What's coming out of me? Am I growing in Christ-like maturity? Am I seeing other people come to Christ? Am I able to do more for Jesus now than I was five years ago? Am I growing? Do I hate sin? You may venture into sin. But, oh, it should feel unnatural to you, like you're in a foreign country. I want to come back to where I truly belong. Do you hate sin and do you put it to death? These are the marks of true Christianity. Don't leave today without being sure that you're in the kingdom of heaven. Don't leave today without coming to personal faith in Christ. In a moment after a prayer, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do just that. If what I've preached today has given you cause for concern, please come and talk to me. Don't let this moment pass by. Enter through the narrow gate even today. Don't, don't worry about what all your friends are going to say. They're not going to be with you on Judgment Day anyway. You're going to stand alone before Lord, the Lord spiritually. Focus on that by faith today and say, I want to be saved. Come forward. There's going to be people here to help you. If you'd like to speak to me, come up and talk. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.